Hey, what's happening, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Rapping with a Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Perkelheimer. So, on today's live stream, I welcome back Joe Caporata. Hey, Joe, what's happening, man? Not much. How you guys doing? So, uh, Joe is, um, well, we were just talking before the live stream, and I had this whole bio ready to read. And uh, Joe just threw me a whole bunch of curveballs, so I'm going to do my best to hopefully not mess it up. But uh, So, Joe owns, a lot of you know, Unique Corals, which is a wholesale and retail facility in California. Joe also started Manhattan Aquariums, a retail store and maintenance company in New York City. And um, so they were supposed to move. Now they're not moving, but I guess they are moving. There's a whole bunch of things that Joe needs to explain clearly to uh, to the audience out there. So we, we're all on the same page. Um, he's taken over a place in, in uh, Long Island. They're expanding in California. There's a lot going on. Joe Joe is a, uh, is a busy guy. He's also the uh, co-owner of Marco Rocks. And he has written about reef keeping, the reef keeping hobby, and also been a guest speaker at conferences. But before we start chatting with uh, Joe, I want to thank the sponsors for this show, Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate them supporting the show. And I also appreciate all you folks tuning in. I see there's a whole bunch of you that are accompanying the stream. Welcome back. And we, uh, as always, encourage comments and questions in the chat. I've got a whole bunch of stuff I want to talk to uh, to Joe about, but um, we can certainly deviate from that uh, list of questions that I have. And so, Joe, man, it's been a, a while since we had you on the, uh, the live stream. How, how's it going, man? It's going. You actually mentioned it's been two years, and uh, I, I couldn't believe it. I was I was thinking the last time we did it, I must have had this building. I'm in now, but no, I did not have it then. So quite a lot has happened. Um, I'm I'm right side up. Came out of the pandemic okay. Um, I'm okay. I'm healthy, and I'm ready to talk some corals and stuff. So I'm good. All right, dude. So uh, what's what's a skinny in, in terms of what's happening? Let's start with New York, right? So you've got yeah. Manhattan Aquariums, and and you started that company, and it's a um, it's a retail, and it, and it's also a um, a a maintenance uh, service uh, company. Yeah. So talk to us about what's going on in New York with um, with with you and your company. So the store has been there since two thousand five. Um, built it built it myself. Um, I moved to California in 2012 and uh, still ran the store, went back and forth. And then right around 2016, 2017, we started getting letters from the city that they were going to enforce eminent domain, which basically means they kick us out on our butt. Tough luck. City's taking <laughs> over the building. So for the last five or six years, they've been running out of money and then getting money again and then doing the project and then the pandemic hit. And so basically we've been yo-yoed around not knowing if we're ever going to have a home. Hmm. That translated to us never being able to get a lease renewal because the landlord didn't know what was happening. The existing landlord sold the building to a new owner. He's been having us on a month to month to make an even longer story short we expect to be evicted or handed our eviction letter this summer. So again, we're month to month. And in anticipation of that, I started looking at alternatives and ideas to move our facility. Because as you know, you just can't pick up and move a fish store. So an opportunity came up in Long Island to acquire an existing store with a really, with a lot of potential on Old Country Road called the Aquarium Village. And um, that deal wound up going through in February. 
So my exist my manager in this store in Manhattan Aquariums um, wanted to become my partner. So we did it. So now he's my partner at the aquarium shop. We've moved some of our merchandise, show tanks, some of the existing staff there. And Manhattan Aquariums is still running. So there was some we didn't know for a while if we were actually just going to move everything, but we decided there was no real reason to do that. So we still have Manhattan Aquariums. It will get moved this summer or the end of this year into probably a smaller facility. And there's an entirely new entity about an hour away in Long Island to serve the customers and people's needs out there. And that's called the Aquarium Shop. And that opens May 1st in a couple of days. Oh, wow. So you guys are... Uh... Basically, you, you, you took over ownership a couple of months ago, and you've been kind of working on <clears throat> getting that facility ready to uh, to rock and roll. Awesome, man. So that, uh, that... We thought, the, uh, we thought the, the issues were skin deep, but they actually were like bone deep. So once we started <laughs> going into the, the, the rabbit holes or the rabbit's nest, whatever you want to call it, we just wound up redoing everything. You just can't leave this and and and, and leave that alone and change that. So we, we, we're, we're going deep, and Mike's been killing himself. We've got a couple guys there. Uh, Christian and John, they've just been working their butts off trying to get that place up in, uh, up in order. So uh, we're very proud and uh, blessed to have them there. The store is going to be great. So uh, what can uh, folks expect uh, in, in terms of that uh, retail experience? It's got a lot of aquarium capacity. So we've got like a 100-foot wall of marine. Uh, we've ordered the new big eye sump from Raj and MRC with the incorporated uh, moving bio bed, the big Orca Pro 3 skimmer, big UVs. So there'll be a lot of good filtration on, on those systems. We'll have a lot of fresh water, a lot of room for display tanks, uh, basically anything, everything you'd want in a fish store. There won't be anything but fish, vivariums and terrariums as well, but there won't be any other pets for now. So everything you need. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because in um, in Manhattan, you know, Manhattan Aquariums was pretty much like the only retail store where you could pick up um, so water fish and corals. You guys did have some freshwater fish. I, I do recall it at one point in time. I don't know if you still do or not. It's been a long, long time. Yeah, we shifted to make more, uh, to do more with freshwater and a little bit less with saltwater. Be more of a rounded aquarium shop. Well rounded. But, you know, I, I thought, uh, I, I, I dig the, uh, the location of Manhattan Aquariums. It's like right off of the, um, the West Side um, Highway, right, right across from the Javits uh, Center. It's, it. I, I guess there was like a lot of, um, you know, issues in terms of being able to find parking and being able to get to it because it's yeah. kind of like on on one side of the um, on the city. But there's not a lot of fish stores and and places where you could buy corals in Manhattan, right? I mean, that's no. There's a couple. I know there's one on the Upper West Side. It's in a basement area, um, and then there's some. Shops down, uh, you know, in like the Soho, Chinatown areas, uh, more heavily into planted and arowanas and um, not a lot with corals now. So I think we still probably have the biggest selection in the city. I don't know that I would go on record saying that, but uh, we, we, we should. I don't know of anyone else that has more in the city. And, and so I remember the last time we spoke, there was like this gigantic 500-gallon display tank in that store that um, you actually moved across country to your house correct 12 gallon. yeah it was 1200 gallons. 12 1200 gallons now freshwater amazon display in my home fish room which we should probably do a small quick i'm not there now but we should do some kind of film project there because i put a lot of time and effort into that and i love it and it's all freshwater um, so half the audience is just going to turn off their, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. You gave the last time we spoke, you gave us a, uh, kind of a preview. I don't think any of those tanks oh, were wet yet. I think you kind of like oh, had them all like 
you know, getting ready to, to get them going. Yeah, they're all running now. It's a 1,200-gallon. There's a bunch of 100, uh, there's 280s. Uh, there's an antique tank from the 1850s right. era, which is uh, fully running. I had her uh, resealed or a new glass put in it. Um, and there's a couple of other tanks. All right, man. So you've, you're, you're, you've been busy on the East Coast, and you've also been busy on the, uh, on the West Coast. What's going on with Unique Corals um, out in Unique California? Unique Corals, um, we purchased a building last year, um, did a remodel in, in this building I'm in right now, um, built out the space the way we need it. We have our Triton ICP lab. I'm showing the video, by the way, of the new facility. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, I, apologies. It's taken a little bit longer, but I've just been spread thin. And right now, I've been trying to do a lot of it myself, all the plumbing and the uh, the infrastructure, building the stands, the double racks, the show tanks. Um, so we got through the construction phase, and this home is going to be the permanent home for Unique Corals, which is an online site to purchase corals, inverts, and in our dry goods that we keep. And then the showroom will serve uh, for any walk-in traffic and also for video work to show the synergy between our brands and the corals that we sell and seeing everything in action. And then the farm has all the corals that will grow. Dude, that uh, that one tank with like it must have it looked like Marco uh, Rock with the um, suspended yeah. rock work. That is yeah. so cool. My only concern though is when you start growing corals in that thing, is it going to start tipping? You know, when you no, because the guy um, that was working with me, Tim Kelly, he designed it in such a way using uh, that's fiberglass I beam and mm. then fiberglass L uh, ninety degree pieces. The L supports go around the entire perimeter, so it's counterbalanced extremely well. So everything is locked in. So he almost stood on the edge of that floating part, and it barely bent. So I have to show you, I should have sent it to you, but a picture of the scape before it had the rock on it. And all that rock was cut, and it is Marco rock, and, and epoxied onto it. So it's pretty bad. Wow, wow. He designed the whole thing. He, he did a great job. With so it. I'm just showing a couple of other pictures of the uh, the new facility that you guys passed along to me. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of empty tanks that I could see yep. there, and um, I see they are wet. They are. I see you tending to a long uh, raceway like a type of a glass tank. It looks like that's a long glass tank, man. Yeah, that's an eight foot glass tank. I just did all the plumbing on those, and I'm being from New York where space is you know, super premium. Um, I wanted to maximize the height of the farm. So I double racked everything. So I built the structures, uh, using four by four bracketed them to the ground. And then I got uh, four inch I beams and I had them powder coated and I bolted them into the tops of the four by four using stainless steel, uh, carriage bolts. And then, um, yeah, it's all coming together. It's super strong. Um, but yeah. So in, in terms of square footage on, so this is going to be the, uh, the retail retail slash farm, right. For unique corals yep. in, in terms of like square footage and, and, uh, gallons and whatnot, is it going to be a larger, um, facility or the same or this facility, the, it's a, it's a little bigger than the old facility. It's got a mezzanine and it's about 50, 5,800 square feet total. The old facility is about 5,200 and that facility we're keeping actually. Um, we unique corals merged the, the wholesale entity with United, actually United Reef did, it was not a merge. It's a brand new entity with three partners, including myself. Uh, so unique corals is focusing its coral game on retail and farming that, that business is strictly wholesale. 
Um, that's called United Reef, and it's operating out of the old Unique Corals facility, which happens to be right up the street. Gotcha. When do you uh, when do you sleep there, uh, Joe? I sleep between 3 a.m. and 3.39 a.m. So I get 39 minutes of sleep every night. Just um, so I see a couple of questions already popping up, but um, let's, um, let, let's just kind of start with some more general questions that I have and then get into some of the specific questions that I'm seeing here in the, uh, in the chat. And um, so you, you guys are um, making the transition to a new facility out there out west. Um, how long is that tr transition going to take you guys? Uh, we're coming into the final stretch. I'm doing a, a big push now. I hope to have it done by June. So all of May, I don't, well, that's a lie. I got one week trip to Marco Rocks to get our aquaculture facility done. Uh, but aside from that, I'm going to put three solid weeks into this place. I've got my team right now finishing up the showroom, putting in the Neptune systems. Neptune was great. Um, they helped us out with a lot of the uh, controls for, for everything. And then the farm is just getting buttoned up and uh, the farm tanks will be finished. So to answer your question, this summer really will be fully operational. Uh, all of our corals will be here and, um, and people can start coming in. And we're going to hold some retail hours in the showroom. So our goal is to be open maybe 10 to 12 hours a week where people that are in L.A. can come and visit us, see our corals, see our signature line. Uh, touch and feel the products and, uh, and ask questions. That's cool. So how how nervous are you about the transition? You know, obviously you want to make sure that, um, you know, it's it's seamless and you don't have any, um, you know, livestock yeah. loss and all that stuff. And it's a sensitive thing. You want to be able to maintain the, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, um, the, the bacteria population that you have in the old system versus going into the new yeah. system. How, how are you guys prepping for that? I'm, I'm doing something interesting on my end, I have two different systems, two different tanks. I got a 187 gallon tank. It's an SPS dominant tank, and I also have a um, a 225 gallon peninsula tank that I started about a year ago. The um, the 187 gallon tank's a mature tank, um, SPS dominant, just chock full of corals. And it got to the point where I just needed to do a reset on it because you know maybe there's like nine or ten big colonies in that tank that are just grown in and crowded a lot of stuff out and it's only so much you can do in terms of um you know pruning and and cutting back stuff so you know i'm taking the transition really slow and i'm going to do um i'm slowly cutting back on the corals in that tank i'm actually going to be swapping out all the rock in that tank because most of it's encrusted with corals so okay. i uh you know I, I i just uh it sounds like you're doing a similar thing in terms of taking your time with it but what um, what are you guys specifically doing to uh, ensure that you you know you have the best um, odds in terms of um, you know not losing anything in that transition? Right. So the the biggest challenge was when we first moved the raceway, and, and we're fortunate enough to have a lot of holding capacity. You know, the old facility I held on to some of the raceways for our unique corals needs. So it's not like anything was without a home. Um, we let the new systems here run for a little bit, and then we transferred some of the existing rock over. Didn't pay much attention to testing ammonia and nitrite as the coral zone seemed to be uh, issued, bothered by that. Uh, our thing was just getting the systems balanced with the new hardware, you know, new dosers, new dosing containers, new Wi-Fi. Those are the things that screw us up more than mm. anything. Once we had true stability, even the room temperature was throwing us off. We didn't, pH was dropping because it was too sealed. So once we solved those issues, everything else kind of went lockstep. We had a little bit of die off. Some of the LPS kind of reacted a little poorly. I think there was a lot of dust in the room from some of the concrete work. But now that things are stable, things are good. 
Um, and, you know, the larger systems are no different than your 187 gallon. Same principles, same foundation goals, you know, maintain that alkalinity and, and all the other parameters. And we tried to match the existing conditions that most of the corals were in prior to the move, as far as PAR and even lighting types. Uh, we tried to use the same style lights, the same radion lights. Um, but so far, knock on wood, we, we've been okay. And we've been going very slow. In our show tanks here, they've got Marco rock in them. As you know, it's a dry rock. It does take a while, like any dry inert rock. So you can speed that up by adding bacteria, by adding existing uh, surface area from an existing system. And we, we've done that, but we're not in a rush, which is, which is a great thing. So you guys have an ICP lab, you know, at the California facility. Are you guys leaning on that at all in terms of the transition? Are you, are you getting that specific in terms of trying no, to match no. it now? We did baseline tests just to make sure nothing crazy or unpredictable was, was seen. But um, as far as manipulating trace elements or the major ions, most of that we do hand, with handheld. It's just it's, it's not cost effective, even though we own the machine, to use ICP for everyday testing. So our guys are testing alkalinity every day, you know, magnesium and calcium every day. We validate that with our ICP machine. But as far as the move, it's 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 mostly just elbow grease and and patience. Yeah. Um, but fine tuning of the system for the long term care, that's where the ICP really comes in and and keeps us right where we want to be humming along. This is probably a good uh, um, point to ask this question from uh, Muhammad. Uh, Gendia, and the question is, um, is iron and manganese important for, um, for a reef tank? You know, so you talked about ICP tests, and, and there's a lot of different yeah. elements in the ICP tests. Um, you know, specifically, yeah. how important do you think those two elements are? And, and, and then um, I guess my next question to you would be, um, you know, what would you say would be, like, say, five other top five elements that you should really be paying attention to with an ICP test? Right. So I want to start by saying that a lot of the evidence is anecdotal. There's not a ton of uh, literature on the actual roles that these metals play, but a, a lot of evidence has presented itself, again, through hobbyists learning trial and error, that these trace elements do play a, a vital role. And you could see the difference when you dose the vibrancy of the colors, the, 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 the size of the polyps, of course, just look happier. Uh, iron and manganese are very important, especially in LPS like Ganyapora. Um, for years, we couldn't keep Ganapora, and it was theorized, I believe it was Julian Sprung that, that first uh, hypothesized the role that these two elements play. And uh, we think that a lot of the elements play a, a functional role in the enzymes to prevent the toxicity effects of uh, the, the products of oxygen. You know, we have these strong LED lights right now, and a lot of the systems run with low nutrients because the systems are running so well. And the zooxanthella algae is producing so much oxygen, if the coral can't break it down and get that oxygen out, it's toxic to their tissues. And a lot of those enzyme, enzymes that are responsible for that seem to be dependent on these metals. Um, the burnt tips with acropora has been theorized it's a, it's a limiting factor of uh, you know, not having enough trace elements. Um, you find a lot of these gonopora and, and elegance and fleshy LPS like um, cathophilia, they're in muddy environments, very mineral-rich, silty environments in the wild. So they're probably extracting a lot of that stuff. Plus the water column itself there has very low levels, but consistent levels of these trace elements. As far as adding and dosing things like iron and manganese, in natural seawater, they occur in very, very low doses, but they are, uh, I'm sorry, concentrations, but they are present. They happen to be close to the limit of detection on an ICP machine. So um, we do recommend dosing 
And even though you don't, you might not see it on your ICP, the ICP is going to validate that you haven't overdosed. So it'll keep you from running the needle too high. But stuff like iron that gets oxidized very quickly and gets used up very quickly, you're better off having a methodology that incorporates this into the system every day, every few days. So people that dose it, like with the Core 7, uh, it's in the supplements and it goes in every day. Um, so anecdotally speaking, these elements are critical to the success, the long-term success of things like Gonopora. Yeah, a few folks are commenting. Terra Reef uh, Aquaculture Aquariums, we have manganese uh, on a dosing pump on our main aquaculture system. Reef the Sea Forever, I dose iron and manganese. Um, great bearded reef, Apol, dosing manganese, chromium, cobalt, iron, and iodine daily. Um, yeah, what else, uh, Joe? I would be careful with some of like cobalt and some of those exotic heavy metals. Um, I don't know their function. Maybe some people do. Um, people do report different colors or intensities of colors by microdosing. A lot of people experiment, and I'm all for it. Um, but as far as the, the key ones, I remember Mike Paletta told me something that stuck in his head. He came back from a trip from Europe and he had interviewed a lot of successful reefers and it was strontium and molybdenum was the takeaway elements that was the common denominator between a lot of these successful tanks. And coincidentally, a lot of them like David Saxby was using Triton testing and performing those tests weekly. Um, and as soon as those levels dropped or they were not existent, he saw it in his tank and he was dosing massive amounts of it. Now, certainly you can get these elements from heavy feeding, uh, from doing water changes with a salt that's rich in these trace elements, but you don't want them to become a limiting factor. So dosing them seems to be the, uh, the, the preferred way to, to maintain what, them. Uh, what salt do you guys use? We actually use Instant Ocean here um, in our mass systems. Um, and then we use Red Sea Blue Bucket in our reef tanks. Uh, there was a while we couldn't get Red Sea Blue Bucket and Instant Ocean. We get it locally here. It's priced right. We have the ICP machine, so we can add whatever we find is lacking or missing. And it's just been a, a good all-around salt for us. A lot of public aquariums use it as well. Yeah, I've been using Instant Ocean um, for a while myself. And, um, you know, the only uh, – yeah, I mean, you mentioned that you have to, I guess, um, just – be aware in terms of being deficient on certain things. I, I the only thing I test for really with the uh, IO when I mix it up is um, magnesium, and so typically okay. I'm I'm having to supplement the magnesium because it's coming in like around twelve ninety or something. Got it, got it, got it. You bring that up a little bit. Yeah. Yep. Um, what about potassium? Are you guys um, kind of keeping an eye on that in terms of uh, when you're mixing up salt? Um, not so much when we're mixing up salt. We're just maintaining normal baseline levels. I think 400 ppm's. Um, we've spiked it a little bit. We'll notice some in, in, enhanced color. I know uh, Justin Credible was experimenting with it when he was at, I think when he was at Reef Gen or maybe before that. Anyway, he was up to eight, nine hundred uh, ppm's, and he was selling the colors were insane. It was something he recommended. I personally probably wouldn't recommend standard uh, C level concentrations. Is 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 what i would aim for so you you think daily dosing in terms of traces would be better versus like doing heavy water changes on a weekly basis because you're essentially replacing those replenishing those trace elements daily versus once a um a week. use daily yeah the, the whole thing with uh, regular water changes it, it's expensive um you're you're taking you're throwing the good water out along with the bad so if you know what you're deficient in and you can get into a rhythm and you know what the tank needs you can save money and do less invasive maintenance as well as reduce some of the variables that trip people up you know if you're not on top of your ro system the the 
the internals within the RO. Or if you have a bad batch of salt, look at that Tropic Marin snafu. You know, everything's going great until you have a bad batch of salt. Do you have a hot spot in the salt? So if you can kind of get the system to be humming where it doesn't look or perform any better without doing the water changes, um, and now some of these trace element mixes are so good, like the infusion mixed with a calcium reactor. Um, there's a lot of great companies having, you know, with trace elements. I love the Triton products. Um, so yeah, you, you can do it without water changes, but water changes are great. Talk, talk about the, uh, the difference in terms of, um, dosing trace elements when you're using a calcium reactor versus two part, right? I mean, you have to, um, actually do some different, um, dosing, correct? If you're doing a calcium reactor versus two part. Well, classic two-part is alkalinity and calcium, which really doesn't have. Um, most of the, the companies are now making something that includes some trace elements. With a calcium reactor, you do get some trace elements, but not enough. And it also comes down to what media you have inside that reactor. You know, a lot of the crushed coral, you're going to get some trace elements. Whatever was deposited into the coral skeletal structure is going to get redissolved into the system. Most of those crushed corals also have, you know, broken snail shells. So you're going to get some orthophosphate. That's why a lot of the crushed media has higher levels of phosphorus. We use the Triton and the Stocco media, which is a pure marble. You're not going to get the trace elements out of it, but you're also going to get a lot less phosphate, and it's going to last you a lot longer. It's super dense. So it's very, very clean, very reliable. Uh, it's dense, so you're not going to get you know uh, any fluctuations really in alkalinity, but you do need to dose your trace elements on top of that. And Triton came out with the infusion, and there's a calculator on the website. If you have X amount of mLs of effluent coming out of your reactor per day, you dose X amount of this uh, infusion product. What's uh, what's in infusion? Infusion is trace elements. Trace elements designed to match the effluent of a calcium reactor. It's not going to take care of some of your major ions, maybe your boron or, or uh, uh, magnesium. You know, you're still going to want to add those. But, um, yeah, it's going to take care of your traces. Just uh, looking at some of the comments in the uh, the chat here. Um, I'm not looking at them, so I'll be distracted. <laughs> <laughs> there was one comment about... Uh, um, there was a comment about the beer I was drinking. They, uh, oh. Lost in Sip of Sunshine. Yeah, this is uh, liquid gold. <laughs> Liquid gold, feel Aquatech, liquid gold, and Combutech. Yeah. Um, we got some questions about specific, um, your favorites in terms of SPS corals. Um, let's get back to that because I had a whole bunch of, uh, we'll, we'll get into the coral part of the uh, discussion in a, in a little bit. Um, but um, I, w I wanted to ask you, uh, Joe, you mentioned Ghani's and trace elements, and, and um, you guys have, have this, uh, I don't know if you still have it, the uh, the Amaze Balls. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Amaze Balls, Ghani? Amaze Balls. Yeah. Amaze Balls. And so, um, yeah, you um, you talked about Julian Sprung in, in, in terms of um, just uh, Ghani care in general, and, and, and Jake um, is um, called your Amaze Balls, Ghani, the homewrecker of flowerpot corals and... <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it does fetch a, uh, a pretty penny. Yeah. So tell us the, um, the story about that Ghani and uh, why you think, you know, I, I, guess, I guess the answer to the question in terms of why Ghanis are, um, are doing a lot better these days versus years and years ago is because of the uh, trace elements. But... The original, I think I have it saved right here. And if I don't, I don't I'm not going to tie up your live stream. Yeah. Oh, there it is. It is... 
I don't know if you could see that. Yeah, there it is. Okay, so that was a Ganyapora that came in from the Mackay region in Australia. So along the Great Barrier Reef, it's roughly 1,200 miles. The Cairns area is in the north, and then you get down to uh, Mackay, it was like the middle to a little bit less than the middle. And then you get down to Lord Howe Island, starts to get a little cold down there, down near, you know, north of Sydney. But anyway, the Mackay bandwidth is where we get uh, the gold torches, scolimia, uh, some acans, actually a lot of acans, and some really cool Ganyapora. And they shipped this one piece in, and we all unbagged it, and we looked at it, and our jaws dropped. <laughs> and for a few seconds, nobody said anything because we had never seen anything bright orange with the yellow stalks. And I said, that's effing amazeball. <laughs> and so the name stuck, but the effing part got cut off for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, so the amazeballs Ghani, which is really the effing amazeballs Ghani's. And then I felt, and once people started asking for it, I was like, well, maybe I should change the name. It's kind of a, uh, a, a low class <laughs> name, but it's fun. I mean, there's worse in the hobby, pink boobies, chalice, and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I, I, so I never had any luck with Ghanis years and years ago, but, uh, you know, like the last five years I'm growing them like weeds and, and it's just, it's amazing to me. And I think a lot of it is also because most of the Ghanis that, uh, and Aviapur that came into the trade were, were, um, collected. Right. And, and these days, a lot of them, um, I mean, I guess the maize balls was a, uh, well collected, uh, Ghani, but it, it seems like they're just being aquacultured and, and, and I guess that's making them more hardy, right? I mean, aquaculture. I have a few theories on that. So traditionally, it was the stokizi, uh, stokizai, the, the, the species of the golf ball, Ganyapura. That was the main one that was targeted and shipped because it was big and fluffy, and that's what people got. Inside, the skeleton of that was a lot of organisms that would die during transit, and it would rot from the inside out. So it was always theorize or, or said in practice that if you cut it and frag it soon after it's imported, you have a much better chance of success. But for so many years, people weren't fragging them. And then there's different species, ones that don't produce that giant bull. They're more flat, they're encrusting. I also think, you know, our reef keeping practices have gotten much better. Um, we're also targeting slightly elevated nutrient levels for the longest time. You don't want any detectable nitrates or phosphates. You know, you look at everyone's, uh, the bragging charts, it's like, I have zero phosphates and zero nitrates. These corals really do better when these levels are, are these nutrients are present. So highlight, we're keeping, you know, nitrates at 10, 15 ppms, phosphates at 0.05 to 0.1. Um, we see it in our LPS first when the, when the levels start to drop, they start to fade, they look weak. And gyneopores, you can just tell it their, their style of predation by their morphology. They're literally baskets of gloves catching stuff from the water. Mm. You know, that screams prey capture, water column prey capture. So, you know, you, you have to look at the coral and say, well, geez, I, I'm probably not giving enough meaty foods in the water column, so I better supplement with some higher nutrient levels. Just want to say thanks to Great Bearded Reef, um, Paul, for that super chat comment. is another great stream, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, man. Really uh, appreciate that love with the super chat. Oh, um, so, so, you know, Joe, um, all right. So Ghaniapora, a lot easier to keep these days. What other uh, LPS would you say have become easier for us to keep in our tanks? Um, probably, uh, 
really all LPS have become much easier. There, there's none that really jump out as hard. You know, the ones that are tricky, like the heliofungia, um, those have always been a little tricky. Um, we've discovered that by keeping them on a sandy bottom, which is counterintuitive, they seem to develop a bacterial infection um, and, and die, you know, shortly after, within a few months. Um, the heliofungia, if you're people just watching, these are fungias, but they're larger and they have long, massive tentacles. It's like a goniopora and a fungia smashed together. That's kind of what it's like. And they're beautiful, they're wavy, they come in all different colors, and they look great on a sand bed. Um, but in captivity, they just seem to do better on a rock structure. Uh, elegance corals have always been super tricky. Yeah. You, know, you know, they just succumb to some infection. We've knocked back those infections by dosing with ChemiClean. It's one of our, our little secrets here. You, you um, dose with ChemiClean. Yeah, we do it prophylactically, um, huh. you know, every few weeks. And we notice an immediate uh, spark up of the uh, uh, stuff, especially like elegance. Um, so, you know, we're that's a whole other live stream just talking about bacteria and this new aquabiomics. And you got guys like uh, I'm dominating. I'm not letting you talk. I'm sorry. Like Bob Stark. This is going to blow some people's mind, but he's been dosing bleach into his tank. Yeah, I know. I I. I, uh, I got to reach back out to Bob because I tried to get him on the stream uh, like when the pandemic started. He was like, I'm too busy. I can't, I don't have any time to do anything. It's like, but uh, everybody was going crazy when the pandemic started. But yeah, I, I've talked to Bob about that. He doses bleach. Yeah. I was like, what, what the what? <laughs> yep. Yep. That was my first reaction too. Couldn't believe it, but he, he's got a good theory and you know, in small doses, it's, it, it's, it behaves like ozone, you know, sterilizing the water column, not enough to hurt the corals, enough to knock back some nuisance bacteria that may try to take a, a, a root hold in the, in the system. And it kind of like uh, a, a forest fire, you know, allowing certain species to, to grow back and not get over dominated. Well, I don't know. I love it. So um, Cindy Reef Girl has is, is, uh, made a comment and I guess a question here. Um, she got a bad sting from a Ghani. Hmm. That's when I found out there's such a thing as Ghaniopora toxin, but I'm wondering if it's only in certain types of Ghanis. Do you know anything about that, Joe? I do not. Um, not my specialty, but I will say that everybody has a different level of sensitivity to these to corals, and I found that even my forearms, which used to be super, well, that doesn't look good. That's a cut from working. <laughs> but um, th this part of your forearm is super sensitive to brushing against any coral. Uh, most of these corals have some low level of self-defense, uh, some nematocysts. Um, and it could just be, you know, just having a living creature and the bacteria that was on it getting under your skin and causing an infection. It may not necessarily be a skin, but I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert. Dude, whenever I reach into my sump and like just scrape against some of the, uh, yeah. you know, the stuff in the sump, the encrusted uh, whatever's in the, uh, the, the sump and I get a little like cut, I'm like, all right, am I going to be dead tomorrow because of yeah. uh, some sort of... Um, bacteria that's gonna be deadly yeah yeah and hydroids or anything in the system is uh could be pretty nasty yeah uh so you mentioned uh aquabiomics what um have, have you guys used that service uh, in terms of no now? i've been, been on my radar i've had the pleasure i think it's colby that that runs it uh well, there's a couple of fellows um but uh, no i have not but I'm, I'm monitoring it and when i have more bandwidth it's something that i want to get into um, and really wrap my head around because I do firmly believe that there is so much information and data to be had there, especially with people battling STN and, you know, old tank syndrome and, uh, you know, Sanjay now, most people know who he is. He's battling some weird tissue yeah. necrosis. 
and it's been theorized that you know in these old systems uh, there's just a, an, an imbalance of uh, good bacteria versus bad bacteria. But this will shed some light on that for sure. Yeah, no, I've um, I had him on the um, on the live stream and we uh, we yeah. talked and and I've, I've utilized his uh, his testing. It's it's interesting stuff, you know, in terms of trying to um, determine. The, uh, that ratio of good versus bad bacteria. Yeah. And, you know, you could really kind of drill down in terms of specific types of uh, bacteria. You could even um, uh, determine if you have any pathogens in your yeah. system, like acroweeding flatworms or other, um, you know, um, well, yeah. you know it, anything else that might, I think even Aptasia, it can, it can tell you whether you got, I mean, everybody's got Aptasia. I mean, I don't know how you get rid of Aptasia. Um, but, um, so do you guys do any bacteria dosing to your systems or not, not at all? No, 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 we, we haven't done any, you know, we have traditionally in our systems, we have such an influx of live coral coming in that there's so much coming in on the base. Um, knock on wood. I mean, our, our systems are pretty mature and solid, very little holes in the, in the, in the methodology game there. We have a lot of tools at our, at our, uh, disposal. You know, we have, a team of 10 to 12 people who just work on the systems full-time so we we're blessed with a lot more time to work on them than the average hobbyist does who's balancing a family life and a work life <laughs> and has to squeeze in a few hours a week and then when things go wrong they got to somehow come up with even more time so all right so you guys are monitoring bacteria testing and monitoring bacteria dosing yeah. Have you done anything major in terms of your methods over the past few years, you know, in terms of making changes to the way you guys tend to your tanks or have you pretty much been consistent throughout the years? You know, I've probably, since we started dabbling with like the hydro wizards, we stepped up our flow. I think we were under flowed, if that's a proper term. Um, but as far as methodology, no, it hasn't changed. If anything, we've just added layers to it. Um, and just tried to get more regimented and more disciplined and, and minimize the time between testing and testing even when we predict the results will be good. Yeah, because it's when you're starting to get comfortable and complacent, that's when you have a trip up. So, um, you know, the lighting now, I mean, we're hitting eight, nine hundred par at peak, even a thousand. Really? No, that's a service. Yeah, the corals underneath in, in one of our farm tanks are at 850. We just tested. I'm going to uh, show the, uh, the coral video of your... Um unique corals with all the corals and, and the um the sps tank and whatnot cool yeah we've got a bunch of flow on there i mean it's wicked no substrate um and just intense light the nutrient levels are saturated i mean um 10 to 15 ppms nitrate like i said uh, always try to keep some some detectable phosphate in there and we do run a calc stir on that all the farm tanks at this new facility are going to be um, set up with Neptune equipment and dosing the Triton Core 7 four-part. So we probably won't be supplementing with Kalkwasser. Um, the pH is very high and balanced with the Core 7. So the, uh, the yeah, the calc stir won't be, won't be needed. What's your, um, what, what's your typical range for pH, the low and the high? Um, it's not something I obsess over, but as long as it's not dipping into the seven, 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 sixes, I'm fine with it. We find that when there's more people in the room, when I was monitoring it more, we actually saw that during the work days, the pH was significantly lower than on the weekends. Hmm. And the only difference is there's less bodies in the room. So we put an air compressor on the roof and we plumbed, uh, ducts into, not ducts, uh, tubing down to each sump and we bubbled it with an air stone 24 seven and that drove the pH up. So that really helped taking outside air and pumping it in. 
what about alkalinity? What uh, do you, is that? Eight. Yeah, we target eight. Eight, and um, is that kind of the parameter you lean on the most in terms of your uh, at least for the SPS? Um, for stability, as you know, and keeping the corals happy, alkalinity is, is the holy grail thing to, to maintain. Everything else is supportive of that, you know, not letting your magnesium drop or your calcium starts to, to precipitate out. Um, and then everything else, not overlooking things like strontium, you know, uh, frags use a lot of strontium. So when we're constantly fragging and cutting, the strontium levels drop quickly. It seems the new tissue as it heals uses strontium a lot. Uh, and that's something that'll be quickly depleted. And these are not things you just want to spot dose without checking. So there are titration kits, but we're fortunate enough to have our ICP machine, so we can just throw a sample in there and get the results the next day. What do you? What, what's your main mechanism for nutrient uh, control? Um, it depends on the system. Some of the systems are chronically low, so we overfeed. Um, I know, and I'm embarrassed. I don't even know the chemical, but I know they're dosing. Um, it's just not something I do on a daily, but they're dosing a liquid nitrogen supplement. Um, it's something they get at a chemical supply house, very concentrated. We have to fill out all these waivers and disclaimers in order to buy it. But uh, it's, it's something you can make bombs with, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, we dose that and it goes a long way. And um, that, that helps to elevate the, the nitrogen levels, ammonium nitrate or something. Yeah, I'd imagine with all the corals that you guys have in your systems that those corals are helping to absorb a lot of nitrate and phosphate. Especially with the highlights. And I remember the days of swapping out metal halides or T5s. As soon as I would do it, the alkalinity would drop the next day. The nitrogen and nitrate and phosphates would drop. Everything all of a sudden, it's like on steroids. They're using more minerals. They're growing more. Um, and it, yeah, so we run our lights very bright. As you know, these LEDs are super bright and they suck up those nutrients. So you mentioned you're, you're, you guys are still using the Radeon uh, 5s. I saw some, um, I think, skylights in the new facility. Are, are you uh, thinking of transitioning to some other type yeah, of lights? So or? We picked up six skylights um, to try over two of the systems. We've got Illumagic Blaze, which I love, um, and then we've got some uh, G5s. Uh, the form is mostly G4s and G5s. It's about split 50-50. Sorry. The, yeah, the farm and the raceways over at the old uni corals facility is all G4s. You know, Ecotech uh, makes a phenomenal light. Um, but yeah, there's some really new stuff coming out from Illumagic. These X4s, I can't wait. They're coming out in August. Heard nothing but great things. And um, once we try and convert some of our stuff and hopefully put them over our farm tanks, it's an Illumagic product. You know, there's um, we, we've talked about it uh, on this live stream Um several times and, and there's been some other folks out there talking about this in terms of that uh, some LEDs there is there is a lack of UV in the mm -hmm. um, in the LEDs and um, you mentioned um, you know Sanjay and him having issues with his uh, his tank in terms of some some um, RTN STN going on and I know Paletta had the same thing and and Paletta had this theory that um, there you know he, he was running the uh, the radions but you know there there is a theory going on out there that there is this lack of UV in certain LEDs that is potentially uh, Mike's theory is that it um, is uh, potentially allowing the um, not killing these pathogens that potentially could be harmful uh, to corals. So you guys have been using LEDs, I imagine, for um, for a number of years in your systems. Have have you guys um, noticed any um, you know types of um, you know, issues with corals under the LEDs 
No, no. And we've run systems, as you know, metal halides have a good amount of UV. Uh, we keep the UV channels on a lot of the lights, um, you know, optimized um, to bring out some of the, the, the more colorful pigments. But um, that's that's a that's the first time I've heard that theory. Um, makes a little bit of sense. Um, you know, some of the, the, the microorganisms if exposed to enough UV light. Certainly, they become a little sterile. It's not going to target anything on the undersides or anything that's not bombarded with enough UV wavelength energy. Um, certainly not going to work on a large organism, I think, like a flatworm. You just don't get enough right. energy into that. But um, it's, it's a theory. Um, enough UV to not hurt the coral, but enough to, to keep it somewhat sterilized. Some, some, some merit there. And, and I should make the distinction that I'm talking about... Um you know, UV that can penetrate down to the corals. I guess certain certain lights do not have measurable UV that can pen, penetrate down to the, the corals versus other uh, UV lights. Um, on Orthodox Reef is asking, are you guys using the G5 Pros or Blues? The We have some of both. Uh, mostly the Blues because the Pros weren't available at the time uh, when, we, when we switched over, but we, we run both. Yeah. Folks, I want to remind you that uh, if you have not hit that like button, please uh, do so so more people can, uh, can find us on the um, find this live stream. And also uh, questions, far away in terms of your questions. So, so Joe, man, let's, uh, let's start talking more about uh, corals. And, and one question a while ago that I wanted to get to is, um, you know, SPS, and you're kind of like your favorite SPS corals. But uh, what would you say your top three favorite SPS corals? Do you have any? Oh, top three, three, definitely the Oregon tort. Nothing beats the blue and the Oregon yeah. tort. Um, the Solomon Islands purple monster, because it's been, um, dude, you and I have the same fav two. top two favorites. All right. Let's see the third one. For me, it's the strawberry shortcake because I named it. So th those, if I had to pick three, th those would be three. I'll never forget when I saw the first shortcake come in, it was like 2007 or eight. And I looked at it and it reminded me exactly like the good humor strawberry shortcake bars that I used to buy at the ice cream man on my way home from school in sixth, seventh grade. Um, so that's where that name came from. Uh, after I looked at it, it was an amazeballs moment, but those are my top three. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I just love the Oregon blue tort. I, um, I have a huge colony in one of my tanks and, and, um, you know, I've got another, um, couple of other, uh, good chunks growing out in the other system. The uh, the Tyree Purple Monster, my uh, my old tank when I used to live in Connecticut years ago, my two hundred twenty five gallon tank. I used to grow that thing like it was a weed under metal halides, and um, I you know so I, I still have it. It's a different you know I, I had to get another frack because I broke that system down, but uh, I'm still growing that coral out in, under my halides, and it's growing so much slower now for me. It's just like it's a slow grow. To it's supposed to be a slow grow, but I don't know what I was doing back in Connecticut, man. It was like growing like a weed for me, wow. and I just can't replicate that these days. Hmm. Do you guys, do you have any of the uh, Tyree Purple Monster? No, we have none right now. We have none. We're hoping, you know, we have our operation in the Solomon Islands. We've been plagued with one hiccup after another, but I mean, we're, we're finally about to start exporting again, and that that entity now is. Most of those corals will come into the United uh, Reef International Group, but the Purple Monster originated there. And when Jake Adams and Tim Kelly went out there in a, uh, an exploratory uh, <clears throat> journey, a couple five years ago probably, they found a patch of it and they brought some back, and uh, it was amazing. The pictures they took, you know, hovering over it, it was just amazing. So we're hoping to find it again and farm it out there. Our ultimate goal is to farm a lot of these gems and find some new ones. So, um, 
All right, we're going to keep talking about corals, but I want to address this one question from Manny's Reef. Um, so we, we talked about this. Uh, so I've been having some rapid growth in my uh, my new peninsula tank. I use the uh, the GHL Mitra's lights. Yeah. And and um, so, and I, you know, I'm, I'm getting some good par out of those lights, like 350 at the bottom to like up to 500 at the, at the top. And and um, I also keep an elevated pH, so I'm dosing Kalkwasser in addition to using a calcium reactor. So my pH in that tank is like elevated to like the 8.3 to 8.5 range. Um, I, I believe it's probably mostly pH related in terms of that rapid growth. But, um, you know, certainly lighting to me is a, is a key component in having good coverage. But, I'm, you know, seemingly I'm getting better growth in that um, LED lit tank versus my other tank under halides and T5s. Yet the the pH is um, is higher in that LED lit um, tank. What what do you think about that theory in terms of uh, growth? Do you think pH potentially could be driving that growth, or do you think lighting? Correlation, you know, calcification is is hindered with a low pH. I mean, look, you know, the the global warming crisis, and as soon as, as soon as the ocean water pH drops, you know, they're they're worried corals will calcify as quickly. So absolutely, um, one limiting main limiting factor to growth is a low pH. Um, so if you can maintain eight one, eight two, I think once you start getting up around eight five, eight six, you start to run into some 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 problems. But um, eight two, eight three, eight four, that's a sweet spot to be in. If, even if you can be in that midday and stuff, that, that's great. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the light. You know, whenever people compare two tanks and they say, "Well, this tank has this light and that tank has that," there's so many other variables at play that it's never fair. You know, it's, it would never be true to science to only take the variables you want to focus on and ignore everything else. Um, there could be some other mechanism at work responsible for limited growth or something. But, you know, as long as the pars are close, um, yeah, definitely some meat on that argument. All right, here's a couple of interesting uh, questions for you here, uh, Joe. One's, one's an easy question for you. I'm sure that there's an easy answer for you here. Blue Reef, is Joe going to be at Reef of Palooza in New York? Last time I saw Joe in New York, his wife was having a baby. Couldn't understand why he was in New York. <laughs> <laughs> well, she wasn't literally having a baby because all of the rap shows are have been in June, right? And my two kids are born in uh, March and April. So she probably just had one and I'm like, all right, I'm out. You're good. No, um, I, I will be there. Um, oh, I'll, see, I'll my, see you there. I'm going to be there too. Yeah. We actually do not have a booth. Oh, no. Um, I'm just going to go. I'm going to just enjoy this one. I'm going to schmooze. I'm going to hang out with people. Get to uh, to just 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 mix and mingle and, uh, and and not be tied down to a booth for once. But we will have a booth at the California Rep. Cool, um, James Scott. What are some tips, Joe? Um, uh, he's asking you to be successful at starting a business to help offset the cost of the hobby starting out. What are some tips in what context um, you want to offset, you, uh, turn your hobby into more of a break-even type sounds, of thing? Sounds like it. Yeah. So we actually source a good amount of our corals from local hobbyists. And that may sound like a surprise, but the diversity of stuff we grow in-house can never meet the demands of our existing constant uh, customer base. Maybe in time when we can get more and more and more farm pieces, but... You know, the people that are on our website every week, every few days, they want to see something new. And the only way to do that is to either import coral, which is very expensive, very hands-on. I do it. I've been doing it for years, but you need to bring in a lot of coral. And it's fairly unpredictable. You don't know what you're getting until you open the box. However, Gary down the street, or Steve Garrett at Acropolis, I know what they have. Their corals are great. 
They call me up every week or two. They send me videos, pictures, and they're looking for, you know, to unload corals at, uh, you know, in mass amounts, two, three hundred at a time. My point is, don't overlook selling to your local store. Unique Corals is a pretty big online vendor, and we source directly from hobbyists. I would love to buy directly, only directly from hobbyists if I could. Um, you make money. We get to make money. Everybody wins. You're not dealing with 50 wacky customers. You're just dealing with me, and we give you a check, and, and, and it's fine. So to answer your question, figure out what corals to get, grow them, enjoy them, um, do it right, keep it healthy. Um, and, and be fair in your pricing and work out something with some local stores. And if they ignore it, um, I don't think you have the right store. Rob Upstate New York, thank you very much, man, for the super chat. The comment is, see you both in June. Great chat. Appreciate that. Sure. Um, so I had a uh, I had another question, but uh, we're gonna, I'm going to defer. Uh, the next question will come from uh, Cindy Reefer Girl. Um, I love Marco Rocks on the E-Marco cement. I always start my tanks with dry rock. I think she's saying, what's the easiest way for a hobbyist to turn the 7 to 8 pound Marco boulders into smaller pieces to not become smithereens? Ha. So the easiest way is to not start with boulders. We have a new product. And I'm, I'm co-owners of Marco Rocks with, with Mark Detroit. We're, we're, we're each half owners. Um, he started the company. I joined it about three years ago. Um, but we've now expanded our product line. And one of the most demanded products is the small reef saver. As you may have seen, Ryan at VRS took a sledgehammer and started smashing up all of his rocks. And I know from experience that if one of those little rocks goes in your eye, it's, it's game over. So... Start with small rocks. If you can't, then put on some protective eyewear. Take a, a hammer or a, a mallet or something, not a mallet, but a sledgehammer and smash them up. You're going to smash them into a bunch of smithereens, but you also will produce some small pieces out of it. Um, but, but demand the small reef saver, which is no bigger than fist size. It's not supposed to be. And uh, that works great for using the Emarco cement or even crazy glue. And we have something new now, which is truly smashed Marco rocks. We run it through like a grinder and it's called MR powder and it's, it's sell, sold in a three pound jar. And after you do your glue joints, you can smear this on or sprinkle this onto the wet joints and it makes the joints disappear. So we did all of our displays here with it. It works great. Um, it's 12 bucks for three pounds and, uh, and, it, and it works great. It's available at BRS, uh, uniquecorals.com, some other places as well. All right. So we're jumping around a little bit here, but, um, when you talked about taking in corals from hobbyists, I uh, something popped into my head, and that that was pests. How do how do you guys uh, manage that situation in terms of when you bring in a lot of different stuff from a lot of different people, and you're not exactly sure? We treat, we treat everything as infected. Uh, we don't take anyone's word for it, um, and we run it through our quarantine. Uh, our new facility here is going to have three different quarantine systems. So it's going to take months for a coral to actually get into our, our working inventory. So it'll go under observation in the first tank and dipping. Then it'll go into the second tank for observation and dipping. And then it's the third tank where it'll sit for a couple of weeks until it gets moved out. And if it ever, we spot anything, we're going to kick it back one or two steps. Uh, we have methods in place now that are similar at the, at the old facility. But to answer your question, you just don't trust anyone. Um, What's your uh, so. biggest fear in terms of pests? Probably the black bugs, and uh, yeah, I would say the black. What bugs. What are you? Um, what are you doing to prevent the uh, black bugs from getting your system? We're doing iodine. I believe we're doing iodine dips. We do prophylactic dip, dips on them, and then treat everything with Revive when they first come in, 
as well as uh, iodine dips, and that seems to knock it back. Nothing seems to really take care of it. They're just so damn resilient. Flatworms crumble. They fall right off in most solutions. Um, for those of you that don't know, with, with acro-eating flatworms, as long as you don't have any dead skeleton, any base, those are where the eggs are. And a good dip should take care of all of the adults. So if you're dipping correctly and you're not introducing any dead skeletal material, it's very hard to, to, to in, uh, get flatworms into your system. It's when you let your guard down and you put something with a base or a frag plug, that's how you can uh, get that in your are system. You, so you guys are cutting everything off the base of the yeah. – yeah. Yeah, not in our, you know, in our systems that have incoming coral, like at United Reef, that's a wholesale facility. We really put a lot of emphasis, we, we train the people that buy from us to be the new front line because we just have too much volume to really do it, you know, long-term correctly. You know, it's just par for the course when you're getting new specimens in and turning over stuff. You, you just can't uh, eradicate everything. So, uh, Matt uh, Millette, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Sorry if I'm not. Um, Joe, how do you adapt from loaded tanks with dosing and from selling out quickly all of your products, I guess, corals? Um, your dosing has to be affected, in my opinion. And then, uh, so I guess he's saying, again, my real question is, what do you look out for when you have a big change in frags and colonies sold? So there's like this big, you know, imbalance, I guess. All of a sudden, you, you guys have a sale or something like that and sell out a lot of your livestock how do you compensate yeah. for that in terms of daily testing and adjusting of the dosing? The alkalinity is the thing that really takes the hit the most. Um, you know, the, your other parameters don't fluctuate as much and the selling tanks are 2,500 gallons. So there's a lot of water in comparison to the mass of corals. So we don't see the shifts that we traditionally would in a small tank with a lot of biomass. But as you know, you stick your hand in the tank, you change your skimmer, your alkalinity trends higher because the consumption drops. You can see the stress through your testing, um, you know, especially now that you can monitor your alkalinity every few hours like on a, on a trident. Um, so as long as we're not too invasive and we're just kind of plucking like leaves off the tree, we're not turning racks over and kicking up all the detritus, most of these blips in, 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 the, in the chemical trends are, are, are non-harmful. And we adjust our dosing daily. Uh, you mentioned detritus. How how um, diligent are you guys in terms of trying to keep detritus, um, you know, at the minimum in their systems? We uh, we we go in every few weeks and we siphon off probably half the raceway. We lift the racks up and we siphon it. And again, we test and adjust the alkalinity as as a result. Uh, but we try not to let that detritus settle. Um, it just lowers the the, the the redox and suppresses pH. It's more acids in the water. Uh, it's just the system runs a little cleaner with, without it, especially in commercial systems. Yep. All right, Josh, the box has a question, and I know I'm going to butcher this name. Uh, any tips for growing the Koji Wada Nephthia? Mine grows quite slowly. Yep. Bright, bright light, and it does growing grow fairly quickly. Um, I've got some friends, actually, well, one good friend over here that, that bought it, and the thing turned into a basketball in like seven months. Very bright light. You know, you, you think soft coral, low light. Well, this thing screams under light and loves it. Um, they're very easy to frag. Just take a clean pair of scissors. Once it's got some mass on it, trim, 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 trim. Let all the pieces fall into a little jar with some crushed coral or rubble or broken marker rocks and place that in a, a slow flow spot in your system. You don't need to tie it. You don't need to glue it. And after two or three days, each one of those pieces is going to stick onto a little piece of rubble. Then you can take that rubble and glue it onto a frag plug. And it should never fall off. You know, give it four days, five days to make sure it attaches. Um, but they're gorgeous. It's pink. 
they're non photos uh, they're photosynthetic but they also prey capture um, so you know they, they do need nutrients and, and food in the water column but they can survive unlike the uh, non photosynthetics which tend to wither away unless you target feed the heck out of it but it's a hardy coral um, James Scott is asking, what, uh, Joe, do you guys feed your coral systems? Reefroids, um, and then fish foods. I, I always believed in putting fish feeders on the systems and keeping more fish and feeding them and let the, the natural breakdown of waste produce food for the corals. Um, but really, you know, for a while we were doing yeast and then we stopped and I don't even know why, um, like the brewer's yeast, um, but Reefroids has been really good with us. Uh, we've, we've, been, we've been doing well with that, especially, again, with our chronic low phosphate. Um, Reefroids does have phosphate because it's very, very rich fatty food, and their corals love it. So we slow the flow, turkey based it into the LPS, like the scolemias and the elegans, and then broadcast feed for the rest of the, of the animals. And feed at night, if you can, after the light shut off. That's when prey capture is optimal. Skimmer off? Um, actually half the systems are not even running skimmers right now, Really, but yes, it'd be good to shut off your mechanical filtration and skimmers or keep more of that food in the system for sure. Yeah. So half the systems, no skimmer. Yeah. And it was kind of serendipitous. Like, um, we just turned one of them off and we, we left it off just to see, and the corals just did amazing with it. Um, and it goes back to one of these things, you know, if it doesn't make the system better, why, why do it? Um, so we've got some, also some new people working that are not fans of skimmers. They feel mm. they either read stuff or they feel through experience that it just pulls out too much of the good with the bad. And, and it does pull out a lot of waterborne bacteria and calcium and trace elements. So there's, there's a good argument to keep it on the system. Well, that's, you know, one, one thing I was, um, kind of thrown out there as a potential theory in terms of why a lot of people are dosing bacteria these days is because, you know, the equipment that we use versus many, many years ago is a lot more efficient. The skimmers are stronger. The filtration equipment is stronger. So, you know, is that stuff pulling out bacteria? But I think, you know, what we always kind of end up is like, you know, when I had Sanjay on, he's like, show me the proof, you know, show me the evidence yeah. that you've got skimmers pulling out the good stuff. So uh, it's interesting. But, you know, my one um, experiment, Sorry. go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, there, there is some proof out there. I mean, the, the Ken Fellman did that famous magma speech on when they uh, analyzed the skimming and all the bacteria that was in it and the calcium that was in it. Um, we know that these corals are doing prey capture. And when you study the gut inside the coral polyps, it's loaded with bacteria. You know, the bacteria right. is so symbiotic with the corals. There might be some, you know, true scientific proof, but... Um, I mean, man, we know that when, when the systems run lean, the corals don't like it. So um, there's enough anecdotal evidence to suggest that the skimmers are removing, removing stuff for sure. All right. So I guess you can kind of get away without bacteria dosing if you're not running skimmers. Well, I don't know that I would go so far as to say as you need to bacteria dose with or without. Bacteria grows exponentially. I mean, I, I, I think it's a lot of snake oil to sell bacteria. In an established system, most species are multiplying so quickly that you reached stability, uh, you shouldn't need to keep dosing. Unless, and maybe that's what Sanjay was referring to, unless you could prove that the skimming is removing something that you need to then add, I wouldn't buy that because we're removing food. Now we have to dose bacteria. The system should be generating enough bacteria to maintain some level of, of biological balance. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I started dosing bacteria um, last summer. So it's almost been a year for me in terms of dosing bacteria. And and 
there was two reasons why I started dosing um, bacteria. One is because, um, you know, I um, wanted to get rid of some problematic algae. So there was some cyano and there was some some um, some green algaes in my frag tanks that I wanted to kind of like get rid of. And so some of the bacteria that I've been uh, the, the bacteria that I've been dosing, you know, do target red and um, brown and green algae. So that has definitely helped. Um, the other thing that I like about dosing bacteria is that it does help to reduce the nitrates and the phosphates. And in fact, it actually it crashed my Cato. So um, I took my algae reactor and also the refugium that I had on the other system offline because when I started dosing bacteria, the um, the uh, the bacteria that was um, helping to uh, cut cut down on the green algae crashed the uh, the Cato. So, um, but I've been running my systems without Cato. So my only, you know, I'm, I'm using a skimmer and I'm bacteria dosing and that's keeping my nutrients, you know, in check. I mean, my nutrients are pretty low. I mean, my, my, uh, nitrates are in the two and a half to five part per million range and my phosphates are like, you know, 0 0.02, 0 0.03, 0 0.05, uh, in, in that territory. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and you, the, when you say adding bacteria, you weren't adding vibrant, were you? No. <laughs> Okay. I tried that once uh, for uh, some dinos, and man, that was like just one one problem after another. But uh, now it's uh, the uh, the Brightwell's uh, Microbacter Seven and the uh, Microbacter Clean products. Right. You know, there's one thing to inoculate to add back a bacteria. I, I don't know that I'm sold, and I it's it's not a strongly rooted position. I'm totally open for for hearing, but I see so many successful tanks that don't need to dose bacteria um, to to run. Um, I'd like to think that with the growth rates of bacteria, if you need to disrupt the bacteria through inoculation, certainly there, there's some merit behind that, but, but to rely on a constant dosing regimen of bacteria, don't know that I'm, I'm sold on that yet. I would love, love some, some evidence, but yeah, I'm, I'm only doing it once a week. So for like each bacteria, I'm dosing one time per week. So I'm not doing it on a daily basis because you could, you do have to shut off your skimmer and uh uv for four hours so to me personally that would be a pain in the ass to do that every day um yeah. but uh yeah, yeah you know i mean listen every tank is different there's all there's you know there, there's not a a cookie cutter way to run a reef tank right 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 and we have to experiment you know i'm, I'm a fan of three steps forward two steps back but that one step forward we learn something from it you know and, and that's what advances the hobby doing foolish things, the micro-bubbling, the, the dose bleaching, you know, this is what advances the hobby. All right, another uh, specific coral question um, from Matt Millett. Joe, your favorite Monty from the Solomons would be? The, the Monty from the Solomons? Yeah, what's your favorite? Oh, um, there was one really cool, it was like a, a grafted red and green encrusting Monty that we've seen. Um, that is in a couple of people's tanks. Unfortunately, we lost our mother colony when we were moving some stuff. I forget the name of it. It escapes me. I, I apologize. I, but I don't really have any others that come to mind. So far, a lot of the Monty's that we've seen are just no different than ones that we're seeing out of Australia or Indo. They're pretty, but they're nothing mind-blowing yet. I know they're there, but we really have not even come close to tapping into the resources that, that are the Solomon Islands. Once Tim Kelly's back out there. Um, and can explore. I can get back out there too. We, we can start to go to some of these islands that I probably never had collection done on. Um, it, this actually kind of brings up a question I had in the back of my head that, um, you know, is something that I, I'm experiencing in terms of uh, shipping costs these days because of the uh, the price of gasoline and, and uh, freight charges and stuff. Just shipping corals 
um, you know, in my business, it's it's like through the roof, man. It's like so freaking expensive yeah. these days, and um, freight freight costs uh, overseas and stuff like that. How how do you think that sort of thing will um, impact you when you want to start bringing in more, um, you know, importing more corals? You know, I mean, just just the the, the cost well, alone is. Um, well, we're seeing fifteen, twenty, twenty five thousand dollars just in freight on one shipment, and the airlines are getting most of that in the broker. So, wow. I mean, to just think of giving them that much for a plane ticket is just mind blowing. But that's where we're at right now. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, it used to be five, six dollars a kilo to bring in stuff from Indo, and now it's fifteen to eighteen a kilo. Um, so I, I'm hoping it doesn't go much, much higher. And, and on top of that is fuel surcharges. And every year there's more and more ancillary fees. You know, the CITES fees tripled um, everything. Everybody wants to make more money. The boxes are more money. The oxygen's more money. So it really costs a lot of money to bring in a live animal from another the other end of the world um, in 24 hours. As far as if it gets much worse, I think our prices are only going to get higher and higher, and it's going to put more pressure on growing corals domestically. Um, we have the tools. We have the ability. I like to think we have the space for it. We just need the, uh, the impetus. You know, we need the, the, the reason, and I think the cost is going to, is going to push for, for more domestically aquaculture corals. Hey, yeah. yeah, I mean, even um, even shipping within the United States is like getting yeah. crazy expensive. Yes, yeah, yes, it is. Well, how, what do you, what do you, how do you think that's going to impact the retail coral business in the U.S.? Well, sir, it's going to take its toll. And I'm hearing rumors of people shutting down aquariums because the electricity costs are getting too high. You know, if something's got to go, you know, the tank's going to be high up on the list to go. Um, but certainly, there'll be probably less coral sales. Um, in you know. Uh, domestically from state to state, probably more local shows will pop up where you can drive your corals around. Um, I think people are going to experiment more with maybe two or three day shipping. Um, mm -hmm. We've had corals that get locked in transit for a week and they they land fine. So you know, until we're pushed to think outside of the box, we stay within the box. Um, maybe dry shipping. You know, there were some people that shipped corals, live corals from overseas, wrapped in wet newspaper, Acroporo, and they came fine. So that's why crazy. are we doing that? Why are we why are we paying to ship water? Well, that's that's just been the way, um, and we can we can absorb the price of that into our existing price structure. But if you keep pushing it and pushing it, people are going to have to come up with different ways. Either the corals are going to get a lot smaller for the same price, and the bags will get smaller, uh, so you just get less mass for the same amount of money, or we just have to think outside the box. Like I said, yeah. So, um, all right, not only is the, um, you know, the, we're feeling the pinch on the coral side in terms of just price increases, but on the dry goods side as well, right? I mean, you guys and uh, Unique have a lot of um, products you sell in, in terms of uh, yeah. dry goods, and there's some serious supply chain issues. What, uh, what are you seeing on that front? Yeah, I mean, we've we definitely seen it, um, especially the manufacturers that manufacture in China. I don't think we buy anything that's manufactured in China, so we haven't been hit with the tariffs. Certainly the international freight, uh, the shipping delays have been horrible. We had, you know, a couple of containers like in Germany sitting out outside of the docks in L.A. for two months, maybe not that long, 40 days waiting to, to come into port. Mm -hmm. It was 100, 150 cargo ships. But as far as supply chain, like Pax Bellum, I know you had to wait. Um, just some of the heat lamps, some of the parts. Now we're getting played with the microchip shortage. So all the smart pumps. Uh, roller mats, anything with a chip is 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 being uh, is being hit hard by this microchip shortage. Um, so yeah, it's it's hitting everything. 
But, you know, buying smarter, buying more in advance, predicting it is where I think smart business and experience comes in to, to kind of mitigate against some of those delays. What uh, do, you, do you see any relief anytime soon in this front? Uh, I mean, what do you think in, in terms of supply chain issues? Do you think this is going to be any, you know, anytime soon? Um, from what I'm hearing, this is going to be another year or two. You know, this is, you know, from people smarter than me that are in the logistics and, and supply chain networks this is what they deal with. They, they don't see this. Uh, kind of subsiding for another year or two. I don't think like a lot of China's now is in lockdown. So certainly we're going to see the effects of that. Not now. We're going to see that months from now, that ripple effect, um, anything manufactured there. So, you know, I would buy supplies now. Don't pour, don't go crazy and buy all the toilet paper, but it probably makes sense to stockpile stuff you know you're going to need. Get six buckets of salt. Load your freezer up with some frozen food. You know, don't stress over it. If you know you need it, and if, quite frankly, if you have the budget, put aside for it. Load up so you don't have to stress. All right, dude. Now you're making me nervous. <laughs> you should stop right now and go and start ordering some stuff. I'm going to put in a huge order of salt right now. I say something where I'm going to get in a lot of trouble with my staff. I don't say. We are having a Reef to Reef live sale this weekend. That's a two-day live sale. Tons of coral, 1,000-plus corals. Um, check it out if you happen to go on Reef to Reef. I hope it's okay that I gave a shameless yeah, plug. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely, man. How, uh, how, th those are those are not easy to put together. No, thankfully, you know, my, my staff is really good. We've fallen into a little bit of a, of a routine now where we can, you know, put in extra hours and still have our corals going up every day but designate some of the real cool gems to go up. And people can save some really good money. Some of those prices uh, – I almost want to buy them back. <laughs> like fifty percent off. I'll buy. Yeah, but it's it's good stuff. Everybody wins. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, what what's the future hold for you guys, man? I mean, obviously you've got a lot of um, projects, um, but uh, you know this is a uh, kind of a corny question in terms of where do you where do you see you guys in like five years from now? But uh, if you had that uh, crystal ball, what would you hope to see? I see this facility that thankful enough to own to be a well-oiled machine with amazing farm tanks no different than a than a, than a worldwide corals or a top show you know the, the, the guys that are really doing it right uh, guys and girls the, the places that are doing it right um we're gonna have this place humming along we'll have our lab cranking out samples next day which we're doing now uh, all the farm tanks chock chock full of really amazing uh inventory our need for importing won't be as strong. We'll have a lot of stuff in-house. And we can actually go out and source really cool corals and buy them back from the community. Uh, maybe if our showroom goes well here, we'll, we'll have a unique corals full retail experience in another location that's just designated for seven-day-a-week walk-in traffic. But um, that's kind of just a, a fantasy right now. I don't need to take on anything else. Um, but for unique corals, I, I see us just doing the same thing we're doing, but just doing it better, more efficient. I believe in the theory of trying to make your business and even your, your work, your life a little bit better every day. You know, if it's a half a percent, 1%, you see the, the, the benefits of that compounded. And after a couple of months, you really start to see change, real change. So we try to make our systems a little bit better and, you know, in training and, and, and the hardware, everything. So there's been a lot of consolidation in the, uh, in the, uh, business right the last uh, year or so but uh, not really on the on the coral vendor side do you ever see that happening where, where um, you know like a unique corals might um, you know partner with another coral vendor out there in, in some sort of um, fashion um, I'm completely open to that um, if, if it makes sense um, it's not it's not a I don't have a strong belief either way um, I, I don't 
um, there's very little that I that we're lacking right now. Maybe resources and time. So if that solution resolved or, or allowed us to, you know, have more time and more resources, certainly, you know, two three heads are better than one head. So, yeah, I'm, I'm totally open to that. Um, yeah, but I but I think unique corals will probably stand alone. I, I don't see anyone out here at least merging. Um, but totally open to that. So, um, folks, any other questions, please um, post them in, in the chat. I got a few more myself, um, uh, Joe. So yep. general tips for uh, SPS, um, you know, having success with SPS, what would you uh, say your top three tips are? I would say um, corals are a lot more resilient than we give them credit yep. for, but you have to give them – a, a, a fixed environment. Remember, the coral reef has been dubbed to be one of the most stable environments on Earth. These corals and the animals found on a reef don't possess um, mechanisms to deal with change in their environment. So, you know, you may be running your calcium and your alkalinity at these set points, and then you go see a friend's tank, and their set points are different than yours. So, oh, I got to, that's the secret, and you change it. And then you go to another tank because you're in a hobby. This is what you do. You go to see different tanks, or you read about different tanks, and this person's running a cater reactor, or this person's, you know, micro-bubbling. So you keep changing these things, and nothing's working. Um, and you get very frustrated, but, you know, you, it takes a long time for the tank, for the ship to straighten itself and to see that clear water behind you from just going one direction. So I would say before you do anything, really think about what level of reef keeping you want. What is your time commitment? What is your budget? And then identify tanks and, and people as mentors that identify with your style and budget and, and, and time and even size aquarium. And then try to replicate something. Don't reinvent the wheel. You know, find a trusted methodology that doesn't incorporate a million bells and whistles. Some of the best tanks out there literally just have a sump. You know, as far as turnover rate, the Triton method has a ton of turnover. And then you get guys like Sanjay that has clownfish breeding in his overflow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's no right and wrong. It's it's doing whatever you're doing right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's um, that's that's very well said. So I would assume then um, you are a more you guys are more of um, in terms of monitoring versus controlling right with all the technology out there are you uh, more about monitoring versus controlling stuff absolutely i've shifted gears a lot you know monitoring is great but it should not be a replacement for controlling i think a lot of people look at technology to automate things that they don't enjoy doing and that's a recipe for disaster especially with life support you know if your loved one was was on an oxygen machine and you know they needed you to check on them every few hours or every six hours I'm just going to throw on a computer and go to Vegas for the weekend. It's not going to end well. You know, you would never do that. So you, you, you got to treat your tank. It's life support. You got to really, you know, use technology, use automated testing, use controlling, I mean, monitoring, but don't replace your intimacy with the aquarium. You, know, you have to stay intimate. You have to be able to look at it and see something's not right. You know, this coral used to be happy. Now it's a little faded. And a lot of the problems show their ugly head before their problem. You should not be losing a coral or a fish that was doing well. It does happen, but most problems in reef tanks happen with one thing first. So don't let your guard down too quickly. And I want to correct. I said there's no wrong and there's no right. There is plenty of wrong. But when you're choosing a method that's proven itself to work for others, try to stick to it instead of jumping around. 
do you tend to uh, think Montes are a good uh, like canary in the coal mine in terms of tank uh, issues? Do do you kind of see the Montes uh, starting to get pissed off more so versus other corals, or are there other corals that you think are uh, more indicative of that? I think a Monty is is a good coral for that. Um, for me, it was always green star polyps when they weren't open. You know, if something's going on, but that's that's like kind of base level. Uh, Montes, yeah, I would say Montes. They'll peel pretty quickly if they're not happy. You know, trace element or heavy metal, you know, some screws in the sump or something wacky, a bad magnet. Um, you know, we see that with ICP, you know, any elevated heavy metals. The Montes are usually the first to peel and let you know. Uh, really, any acropora that starts to show some recession around the base, you know, that, that's a canary in the coal mine for sure. What's uh, burnt tips on an acro a sign of? Uh, an imbalance between alkalinity, lighting, and nutrients, usually those those three. You know, if you're running... Uh, just not enough nutrients and high alkalinity and your highlights, you know, those corals really need to, to, to have a lot of nutrients, but it's really, it's, it's a four pronged approach. You need, you need the trace elements, you need the stable alkalinity, you need the higher nutrients and the highlighting, and you should not really see the, the burnt tips. You know, people were theorizing that, well, not a theory, it's pretty proven that uh, low alkalinity was a, a limiting factor to growth. So they ramped up the alkalinity. Remember back in the nineties, we were hitting 14, 16, DKH, and we were getting burnt tips. We didn't have the nutrient levels to sustain that kind of growth, um, and we also didn't have ICP testing, and 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 there wasn't as much of an emphasis on that. Um, here's a uh, good question. I I, I uh, did not uh, have um, uh, planned to ask you, but Algae War is asking, how did the Australian live rock sourcing come about? Uh, that came about um, the coral. Actually, I don't know the, the acronym. Jamie Craig's was working with some scientists. They created a coral spawning lab, Jamie Craig's, out of the UK. And uh, Vincent Thomas and him created a beautiful lab out of 8020 aluminum. They blacked it out. They built a bunch of glass fish tanks. They automated it. They put radion lights. They mimicked the moon phase uh, over the tanks. And they spawned coral. Um, Jamie Craig really gets the credit for that. Um, they started replicating the system and putting them around the world. They put a few of them in the U.S., one of these suppliers was told to stock their tank with live rock. Uh, I'm sorry, one of these scientists was told to do that. So I hadn't sourced live rock in a while, and I reached out to some of our collectors, and, and he said they have a site that they can collect from that doesn't have a lot of coral on it, and they're allowed to collect rock there. So we brought that in, and uh, that's where we got it in, and I brought an extra in case there was an issue, and then we had surplus rock to sell. How, um, how much die-off was on that rock? I'm assuming it was in transit for a while. You know, it was... It was stinky. The skimmers went nuts. But uh, we brought it in two or three times. And on the last batch, we sent some out right away. And, it, and it's tough selling live rock because you want to sell it live. But with it, it's nasty. Yeah. So if yeah. you don't train your customers to what they're getting, they're in for a surprise and their family's in for a surprise. But somebody sent us <laughs> a video the next day of a blenny that was in the rock and it was alive. And this rock was really? dry shipped from Australia put in our system, and then we dry shipped it to the customer. And I say dry, but it's damp. Yeah. And the Blenny lived in a little moist pocket in the, in the rock. So a lot of stuff lives, but unfortunately a lot of the stuff dies. And um, I, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I hope we don't go back to full live rock. I, I want to see a hybrid, and I believe in it. And that's why our Marco rocks, we're, we're, we're putting a lot of resources into aquaculturing the rock, and that's coming on board real soon. So um, you'll be able to buy live, clean, pest-free, Marco rock. Oh, no kidding. Really? So you, you, from unique corals, you can buy 
Well, Unique Holes will probably be a seller of it, but Marco Rocks. Uh, oh, Marco Rocks. Okay, right, right, right. Yeah, right, we still right. need to figure out the the entire business model, but it will be a direct to consumer, whether it's a drop ship or uh, a direct to consumer. But our main goal is to get the rock from our tanks to the end user as fast and with minimal uh, chain of custody. So we we want to know that our product is going in there and not some molested the product that sat in a store or a you know, FedEx warehouse for five days and defeats the whole point. So that, that's our goal. Yeah. I, um, I picked up some, um, Carib sea life rock for my, um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the 187 gallon tank, which I'm going to swap out. I've got Haitian life rock in there right now. And that's what I'm going to be swapping out for the Carib sea uh, life rock. And I've been cooking that in a hundred gallon Rubbermaid for about three months now. Doing like 10% water changes with the established tank water and all that stuff. But when I bought that uh, rock from a local fish store in New Hampshire, they um, they brought it in. It was dry, and they had it in their um, they had it in a uh, like display tank with other um, dry rock. But um, the uh, the water was not looking too good, and I was like, you know what? I want to uh, have the advantages of being able to sculpt and and uh, glue together some of that uh, dry rock. So I I dried out that live dry rock. And then, and, uh, decided the live, dry, live, dry rock. Yeah. Yeah. I just didn't, uh, I, I wasn't too enamored with where, where it was right. being housed and, but right. you know, I'm sure it had some bacteria on it, but I don't know, man, it's supposed to be sprayed with bacteria. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know how much, uh, yeah, I could get a spray and spray our Marco rocks. I won't do it. Yeah. It's, it's um, it's gotta be some science behind it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Joseph uh, Muscat, Joe, what's up, man? How you doing? Um, what's your swing on alk per day and night? Do you consider unharmful? So, what what kind of swing in alkalinity would you say over a twenty four hour period is uh, okay? Everybody you ask will give a slightly different answer. I think the best answer is whatever doesn't cause noticeable negative effects on your own tank. Um, for us, it's probably point two to point four. Um, with hardy corals that are well established, we could probably full a, pull a full swing once a week and not see much damage to the coral. But if we did that consistently, certainly the, the effects would, would be seen. Um, but I think it's pretty pretty normal to see a 0.5, uh, 0.4, maybe a little bit less actually, you know, 0.3 to 0.4 between uh, day and night. But if you know, I'm sorry, yeah. All right, one last question, man, and then we're gonna uh, we're gonna wrap it up. Uh, Russell Adams has an interesting question. Question for Joe: What do you think of the recently surfaced coral smuggling bust? <laughs> Have you heard about that? Yeah, I did. I did. I did. <laughs> I. I mean, you know, yeah. What do I think about it? I think that the people are, are idiots, and uh, it's it's not not the way to do it. Uh, it certainly isn't smuggling coral. They brought them in through Alaska. The Philippines are off uh, off limits. Um, but yeah, you can't do it. You know, there's so many examples of people getting pinched. Uh, I'm surprised more people don't. I mean, our, our industry seems to not have, uh, you know, we go a few years between each bust, but you know, yeah, it's, it's, it happens. It happens. It yeah. Happens. Unfortunately. I mean, look at the prices people are paying, you know, when you drive those prices up, it's gonna, it's gonna create a, a demand where people are willing to break the rules. Yeah. Like that. Unfortunately. All right, dude. So, uh, anything, uh, anything else you want to, uh, mention that you guys have the live sale going on this weekend, right? Unique yep. corals, but, uh, anything else, uh, we should know about, you know, there's some really cool new, uh, products from hydro wizard that are coming out like the, the inline, um, inline reversible pump, 
which we just received the first ones, but they're in metric. I'm waiting for them to be imperial. And these are fully controllable, reversible. So imagine a closed loop pump that has the power of a Hydro Wizard. It's quiet, and you can have five hours in one direction at whatever intensity, and then ramp down and change and go the other direction. So especially on bigger features where you're bigger systems where you're trying to create a lagoon, you know, spinning one way and then spinning the other way. I, I think there's some really cool applications for that to not be not have to see pumps inside the tank. I'm not a big fan of penetrating the bottom of the tank with, with you know, nah, me neither. That's that. But you can put the pump in the tank. You can come over the back of the tank. Uh, you can incorporate it into an overflow with a new system design. So there's ways to you know, mitigate against that liability. If you use Schedule 80 bulkheads and Schedule 80 plumbing and you do it right, you'd be hard-pressed to ever have a leak or an issue. But it's when you use those damn cheap ABS-molded bulkheads, you're just asking for trouble. And that's one of my pet peeves that I, I want to come close to ending with. People buy these $10,000 fish tanks hmm. and they put a $7 ABS two-part molded bulkhead on it. Don't ever do that. When you order a tank, give them the whole size if they don't know it for like a Hayward or a Spears Schedule 80 bulkhead and plumb it the right way. Yeah. Yeah. No, you don't want to mess around with that stuff. No. And yeah. you see it all, all, everywhere. Yeah. All right, man. Well, listen, this was, uh, this was awesome, Joe. I really, uh, appreciate you taking the time again and, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, hopefully bump into one another at, uh, Reef Palooza in, in uh, New York in June. Maybe we can have a non-virtual beer. There you go. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, All right. Good. Well, everybody, that'll do it for this show. I want to thank everybody for, right. uh, for tuning in. And I also want to thank Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for, uh, being a sponsor and supporting the show. And, uh, thanks folks for, um, being supportive via that super chat, Paul. And uh, Paul, yeah, I also want to thank Paul, who was the moderator of the uh, the program. also want to remind everybody that all episodes of Wrapping with Refoam are now available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. My next live stream will be next Thursday at 7 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time, May 5th, with Kenny Lynn from Pieces of the Ocean. So it should be another great show. And if you guys want to uh, check out the full schedule of uh, Wrapping with Reef Bum in terms of the guests, visit reefbum.com under the YouTube section. Well, with that, um, everybody be safe, be well, and we will see you next time. Awesome.